Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, my name's Jess Phillips, and this is yours sincerely. Usually in this podcast, I give my guests a chance to celebrate three people that mean the world to them. Someone they love, someone who's no longer around, and someone who doesn't realise how significant a role they've played in their lives. But this week, as part of a special series of episodes to celebrate International Women's Day, I'm speaking to inspiring women about the issues that matter the most to them. Baroness Saida Barsi is a lawyer, businesswoman, campaigner and former cabinet minister. She is perhaps best known for being the first Muslim to serve in a British cabinet and being one of the youngest people to ever join the House of Lords. Today, I'm excited to talk to her about her International Women's Day theme. Stop saving Muslim women and start listening to them. So hello, Saida, how are you? I'm good. I didn't realise you did a podcast. I should have known this. I mean, everybody does these days, don't they? But it's a lot of hard work. To be honest, it's like an hour a week where I just chat with people. And honestly, it's the best part of my week, just chatting with folks and, and saying nice things about people. I will tell the listeners that the first time, and you may not even know this, Adrian, although maybe I've told you this story before, the first time we actually ever met was you were on Question Time and I was in the audience. It was in Birmingham at Hansworth Girls' School and I'd gone along. I wasn't even a counsellor or a candidate or anything. What year was it? Uh, it must have been, I think it was very early in the Cameron years, so 2011 maybe. Right, right, okay. 2011, yeah, maybe even 2010. And it was in Birmingham, you were on the panel, and I was all there like fierce to be like, I'm going to be fierce at the Tories, and you were just being really sensible on the panel and talking about <laughs> coming to Soho Road with your mum and things, and I was like that, oh, good damn it. I didn't ask a question, but I got to like make a comment from the audience. So, you know, long before I was ever a politician, we were together on the television. Oh, wow. You know what? I remember when I first did Question Time in opposition, it was brilliant because you guys were in power, Labour was in power. And so I was like really feisty and constantly having to go, you must do this, you must do that. And I got all sorts of, I even got awards for like my performances on Question Time. And then suddenly we got into government and then it was us having to answer the questions and how was rubbish I swear I came out of one question time and I said to my husband I said I can't do this I said I'm, I'm rubbish at this I don't know what's happened to me but I used to be able to do question time really well and he's not a political at all and he just turned around and he said no you can do question time you just got to work out what tools you're working with and I said I just don't get that and he said well you were good at question time because you're great with a sword you've now got a shield in your hand learn to work it 
And it was just that really simple thing that he said. You've basically got a shield and you're working it like a sword. Of course, it's not going to work and it's going to fall apart. Learn to work the tool in your hand, you know. So it was, um, yeah, I think, yeah, I don't know whether that Hansworth one was a particularly bad one, but I remember some question times in government which just felt like bear pit. So this podcast is all about letter writing. Are you much of a letter writer? I used to be, and as a family, we used to be, because growing up, so mum and dad came over in the 60s from Pakistan, and all their family were left uh, in Pakistan. And so the only way to stay in touch with siblings and parents and aunts and uncles were these airmail blue envelopes that they used to get. And they were they're always blue, and they used to seal on three sides at the end. And I just remember that, you know, the moment when the letter went out was so huge. And the moment when the letter came back, it was about three weeks between one going out and the next one coming in. And every inch of this blue letter would be covered in writing. Like every tiny bit, yeah. Yeah, and it would be like, P.S., P.P.S., P.P.P.P.S. And, you know, you could see the looks on my mum and dad's faces when these letters arrived because it was the only form of communication from thousands of miles away. And that included, you know, serious things like births and deaths and, you know, events in people's lives were all recorded through these blue kind of airmail envelopes. And then I think more recently, has letter writing been a part, you know, something that we do and like major cheese alert now before I say this, but because I used to travel a lot for work before government, my husband used to travel a lot for work. One of the things we used to do a lot was leave written kind of notes in luggage for each other. And effectively, it would mean, you know, I'd be out in some, you know, I'd be in Kabul for a government visit. And then in the middle of all my clothes, I'd find this letter, which which always, you know, said something nice. And, and it was just really that kind of feeling of being connected, which meant more than a text or a WhatsApp or whatever it was. Actually, it was something that was thought through and these were always lovely. Mine were lovely. And then they always ended with, I remember to put the bins out. <laughs> uh, <laughs> every, you said, everybody else signs off with yours sincerely or love you lots. And her, you, I sign off with, I remember to put the bins out. <laughs> Me and my husband don't, I, I don't think we've ever particularly written each other any love letters particularly. Sometimes, because my husband's name is Tom. And for a spell, when I was first elected, Tom Newton Dunn was the uh, political editor of the Sun newspaper. And on more than one occasion, I sent a message. I'm quite glad I don't send loving messages to my husband. On more than one occasion, I accidentally sent text messages to Tom Newton Dunn that said things like, put the toilet roll out and things like that. <laughs> like, you know, Which was things- fine. You probably meant put your newspaper in the bin, put your toilet roll out. <laughs> it kind of probably made sense to Tom as well, Tom Newton Dunn. <laughs> So normally I ask people to nominate three letters, but we're doing a special thing for International Women's Day. We're asking women of note, of which you are one, Saida Varsi, Baroness Varsi. I sense there's a hostile question coming. (laughs) We've asked uh, you to come up, instead of coming up with the people you would write a letter to, we're asking people to come up with the, the idea of a theme that they would want people, active women and anyone, to write a letter to try and change. So what is the theme of the thing that you'd like to see change? What would you choose as your theme? So the thing that I found fascinating in politics, both historically and my own time in active politics, is how often women and women of colour and Muslim women are treated like they're somehow people to be saved. 
And there is no doubt that Muslim women face a whole load of challenges because they are Muslim women. And those challenges are sometimes from within Muslim communities, sometimes from outside Muslim communities, sometimes culturally kind of defined, sometimes racially defined, you know, gender defined. But what I find fascinating is how, both through history and more recently, men, uh, predominantly white men, will be quite happy to save Muslim women and will talk about how, you know, Muslim women are treated really badly. And remember when David Cameron once said they were traditionally submissive and there's all these views about Muslim women. And yet when they meet one who is I presume the empowered woman they want her to be, they can't hack it. And I, I always say I've never met so many men who want to empower Muslim women who can't bear the prospect of meeting one when they meet her. <laughs> I've got to say, as somebody who represents a very large Muslim community, that is exactly right. There is this idea that Muslim women need a saviour rather than just someone to just listen to them. Give them power to do something. Yeah, just get out of the way. When I wrote my book a couple of years ago, and I spent a lot of time interviewing people, and, you know, in the acknowledgements, I acknowledged so many women that I'd worked with, the Muslim women that I'd worked with, and I said, every day I am reminded that the powerhouse of this community are its women. They are brave and they are bold and they are feisty and they are clever and they are funny. And, you know, and I know that because I meet so many of them. And yet still we have this kind of view that when we talk about Muslim women, you know, we're either talking about you know, forced marriages or FGM. And of course, these are important issues, but that is not the only thing that defines women. And the whole kind of diversity of women, Muslim women and women of colour, is so broad that I sometimes feel that sometimes Western feminism doesn't have a space for it. And certainly, you know, when you're dealing with, you know, white male politicians, they don't seem to understand that space. I, I remember when I was researching for my book, Jess, that when women were fighting, when suffragettes were kind of saying, we want a vote in this country, there were parliamentarians standing up and saying, no, we don't think women really deserve this. We're not sure they're going to be able to kind of cope with the fact that they're going to have a say and have a vote. Do they really need to be empowered in this way? And yet the same politicians were talking about the empowerment of Muslim women in colonised Africa. And I was like, well, you know, at home, you don't, you know, you don't want to talk about empowered women, but there you want to. And, and I think this kind of saviour mentality towards Muslim women and women of colour is something which I would like to, yeah, write a letter about and say, uh, get out of the way. Yeah, get out of the way. That comparison from the suffragettes is definitely something that I have seen working in violence against women and girls is that there is a lot of people that are willing to accept male violence against women by like, you know, the perceived others like the people over there who are doing this dreadful, dreadful thing, like whether it's FGM or, or like you say, forced marriage, child marriage, like people will be more than happy to stand up and talk about those things. But when you say, well, you know, this is happening in every community, like the idea that male violence against women is owned by this people that you can say it's awful, it's barbaric practice. The idea that that's not happening, not just in your community, but literally in your peer group. That is not something that you're quite so keen on. It's like it's sort of barbarian behaviour of other people. And that is, that. I see that, I still see it every day, actually, I see that. 
And that's why I kind of say that, you know, the number of my colleagues who will talk about, you know, supporting FGM out there, but will not then take the prime minister to task for calling Muslim women letterboxes and, you know, bank robbers. And I think, well, you can't have it both ways. You either believe in the fact that, you know, Muslim women deserve equal value and equal worth and dignity. And that's from everybody. But you can't say, you know, when the the Muslims, inverted commas, might be doing bad things to you, we'll stand by you. But actually, when other people do bad to you as Muslim women, we're just going to kind of turn a blind eye and say, well, that's what happens. So I think for me, the hypocrisy, and, you know, again, I mean, I wrote about this in my book, Jess, when I said that from the day I was born, I've been fighting for equal worth and equal value. That's from within conservative Asian societies, you know, people's interpretations of faith, right through to, you know, working in male-dominated professions. And all along, it's exactly the same. It's men who come along, you know, and whatever they justify as, you know, whether they justify as culture or faith or banter or politics or the boardroom or whatever they want to justify as, it is just men behaving badly and finding a reason to do it. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. And I would say it's not even just conservative with a small or big C. I, I've seen the same thing amongst, you know, sort of left-wing uh, organisations and the way that they can treat women of colour and faith. And definitely, there's a definite pity element around, like, we must do, you know... You think, yeah, save Muslim women. It's that they sometimes get wrong, I'd say, that it's like, uh, you know, we must go out and save them. It's just like, why Why do you think you're... I have to say it's a bit like the sort of Prince Andrew comments post the settlement. It's like, I'm going to dedicate my time to helping sex traffickers. It's like, what, what skills do you have in that? <laughs> uh, you know, like, you know, why on earth do you think you've got the expertise to be a person in this field? There is a sort of arrogance of, oh... I've got the answer. Anyone who ever goes to Israel and Palestine gets it. There's a thing called Jerusalem complex where they think that they can solve it. Like, oh, actually, now I'm here. If I dedicate my life to this, I'm going to be the person who's going to save this crisis. And I I think that there's a lot of that, the, the way it presents in sort of left wing environments. Exactly. So I think for me, it's a, a sense that, you know, we just need to allow women to flourish in all their diversity and let them tell their own stories and define their own issues. And if they want your help, get alongside it. And if they don't, get out of the way. Yeah. So what practical ways can listeners help change this? I think rather than jumping feet first, like you say, into something that they think they've got a solution to, actually turn to the women and say, well, what do you think the solution to this is? And do you feel that I have a role to play? And how can I help and support you in doing that? And just listen. I remember, you know, meetings in government when there'd be discussions about Muslim women and, you know, my white male colleagues would be sat there giving their great expert opinion and I'd be sat there flabbergasted because this situation would be so stupid. I'd have to say, well, as somebody who's been one for 40 odd years, can I just say, like, when was the last time you actually, never mind people, when was the last time you actually spoke to somebody who's had these real lived experiences? You know, when was the last, I remember saying to one of my colleagues, who I won't name, who I said to him, he was talking about mosques, and I said, when was the last time you actually went to a mosque? Well, I've been to two in my life. <laughs> oh, okay, that makes you an expert. <laughs> I know it's like every politician thinks they're an expert on education because they went to school. And it's like, that's not the same thing. It is flabbergasting that when that happens, like when they're like, 
telling you, I sometimes I sit very often in Parliament and think, have you ever met an actual person? <laughs> like it, that, that crosses my mind all the time. Like, have you actually met a person? There is quite a lot in the sort of practical thing that people try and do is that people will also just do this lip service thing where they'll go, we're going to go and have like a round table of like Muslim women and think that that is going to represent the entirety of Muslim women. So what uh, letter would you send this International Women's Day? I would say, dear world, Muslim women, of which there are hundreds of thousands, millions around the world, are so diverse. And why would they not be just like any other woman? They come in so many different forms and ethnicities and backgrounds and language and class and culture. And just allow them to be themselves in all their diversity. Stop clumping them together as this kind of monolithic group. Stop stereotyping them. Stop imposing your own prejudices upon them. And if you really want to be an ally of Muslim women, then give them platforms, get out of their way and let them have their say, their way in their own words. I shall admit this to you now that I sometimes get sick of meetings that I'm told are going to be community meetings. Yeah. I turn up and there are no women. Yeah. Meetings. Don't speak to them. So I started saying to some of the people saying, I'm not coming to this meeting unless it actually represents the community and there are some women there. And then I realised that there was 12 women being drafted to come to these meetings and they were sat bored in these meetings because they actually didn't want to be in the meeting. And I just realised that a lot of the women, when you go and talk to them about those particular issues that might have been being discussed in the meeting, they think that the meetings are tedious and that they're actually considerably smarter on the issues. They don't want to sit through endless constant meetings. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we saw this in the Bali and Spen by-election when Kim was elected recently, where George Galloway was running a campaign and, you know, he had loads of these men around him and it was very macho. And and um, and I think the women just thought, you know, fine, you carry on shouting over there and we're just going to get on with running the campaign over here. And a whole load of them wrote very publicly saying, we don't want this anymore. We're not going to be part of this kind of loud, shouty, kind of way of doing politics that actually there are some serious issues that we would engage with but this carnival coming into town is not the way that we want our communities to be run and there whether it was you know Shabana Mahmood running that campaign or whether it was women on the ground I mean the chairman of the local association was a Muslim woman and you know some of the campaigners some of the campaign group it, it was just phenomenal to basically say you know what forget it, we're just going to get on with running our campaign. And it was, a, it was a tough campaign. You know, I mean, there was talk that you potentially could have lost that seat. But the fact that they showed their kind of talent through this campaign was, again, a, a great example of what, you know, when you get out of the way, just let them get on with a job, what a, great, what a great job they can do. Yeah, so I went up a couple of times and each time we were going out with teams of Muslim women to talk to Muslim women. And actually, i got to say, it's like really good fun. <laughs> we just, I was just like, I like this campaign, this style of campaigning where we all just go Did out. Did you just eat happened. too much? <laughs> and you ate too oh, much? To the amount of jalebi that I had to eat. Oh. I'm used to this now. I well, am used you had to eat. You make it sound like, Jess, you were protesting all the way. Don't give me jalebi. <laughs> 
It is just all I'm going to say is there is no saying no. People would run down the street after me. I was like, I really have just eaten and people would run after me with food. But you're absolutely right. I'm not going to protest. I did definitely enjoy it. It was really lovely. That sense of political campaigning with women, for women is like, it's good for the soul. It's good for your heart. It's good for the soul. Well, it has been an absolute pleasure to talk to you and I can't tell you how much I love your theme and the message that got sent was just listen and get out of the way. It's the greatest political message ever. Listen and get out of the way. (laughs) I like it a lot. Thank you so much, Saida. Thanks, Jess. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Yours Sincerely with Jess Phillips. I'll be back tomorrow with a special conversation I recorded with Zara McDermott. If you want to hear more conversations just like this, make sure you follow Yours Sincerely with Jess Phillips on the podcast provider of your choice. And why not write a letter to your friends telling them all about this podcast? You could also follow us on social media. We're at Jess Phillips Pod. Goodbye. 